You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Hey guys, Ready or Not 2024 is here, and we here at Breaking Points are already thinking of ways we can up our game for this critical election. We rely on our premium subs to expand coverage, upgrade the studio, add staff, give you guys the best independent coverage that is possible. If you like what we're all about, it just means the absolute world to have your support. But enough with that, let's get to the show. Good morning, everybody. Happy Tuesday. We have an amazing show for everybody today. What do we have, Crystal? Indeed, we do. Lots to get to this morning. Polls, polls, polls. Some very interesting numbers coming out. New York Times on both the Democratic side and the Republican side. Who's up, who's down? What does the race look like? Uh, we will dig into all of that. We also had some very interesting testimony uh, here on Capitol Hill from a former Hunter Biden business associate who is, by the way, facing jail time and is uh, really undermining the story that Biden has been going with. We've got some media cope for you. We've got we got the whole thing with regards to Hunter Biden. Um, <laughs> also, big developments in terms of Ukraine. You know, these uh, drone strikes on Moscow yep. are now becoming just an Pretty absolute routine. regular occurrence. So we'll tell you about that, some other things that are going on there. Wild story coming out of California. I honestly don't know what to make of it. There was an unlicensed medical testing lab mm -hmm. um, that, you know, authorities were able to get into. They found all kinds of, um, you know, viruses and all kinds of, like, human biological substances. Very disturbing, actually, and some disturbing connections there as well. Sagar's got an update for us as well in terms of the uh, UFO testimony that we saw recently and uh, some pushback that we're getting. Some drama breaking so, out. Some yeah. major drama there, so uh, we will break all of that down for you as well. But before we get to any of that, thank you again to all of the premium subscribers. We've been really working hard to get some big guests in studio, and um, I know you guys have really been responding to those interviews, so thank you so much for your support. There. Yeah, that's right. So we've got uh, more big guests that are coming down the pipeline. We've been working and using extensively a lot more resources. Thanks to everybody that's been able to sign up at breakingpoints.com. You guys not only enable the ability to actually get these done, all the man hours that go into it, the hours 
after the production, travel, et cetera, that uh, makes that possible. So thank you all uh, to those people. And of course, as a thank you, we always release uh, those interviews first to our premium subscribers. So if you want the big names and you want them first, then that's the reason to sign up, breakingpoints.com if you are able. But let's get to uh, this big New York Times poll, Crystal, which is making big waves, uh, both on the Republican and on the Democratic side, really. Yeah, that's right. So let's start with what's going on with the Republicans. Let's go ahead and put this up on the screen. So Trump with a massive lead in terms of this New York Times Siena poll, which is considered kind of a gold standard. They spend a lot of money on these things to mm -hmm. try to make them as accurate as possible. Not that they always really succeed there, but um, this comports with the trend that we have seen of Trump really pulling away from the field. So we have him at 54, so more than majority, DeSantis at 17, and then everybody else is at either 3, 2, or 1%. You've got Pence, Scott, and Haley at 3%, um, Vivek and Chris Christie at 2%. So obviously, doing the basic math here, even if you add up all of the Trump opponents together, you still do not match what Trump has. They did test the head-to-head -head Trump versus DeSantis, and he was winning by a two-to-one margin. Brutal. So even in the fantasy world where everybody drops out mm -hmm. and everybody coalesces around Ron DeSantis, Donald Trump still with a massive, massive lead. Let me read you a little bit of the analysis here. They say that um, Mr. Trump held decisive advantages across almost every demographic group and region and in every ideological wing of the party as Republican voters waved away concerns about his escalating legal jeopardy led by wide margins among men, women, younger, older voters, moderates, conservatives, those who went to college, those who didn't go to college, cities, suburbs, and rural areas. And uh, you can also see that uh, there were additional ominous, ominous signs, they say, from Mr. DeSantis, who performed weakest among some of the Republican Party's biggest and most influential constituencies. He earned 9%, DeSantis, 9% support among voters at least 65 years old, 13% of those without a college degree. So basically working class voters, only 13%. For DeSantis, and you know, and another sign saga that is very uh, not so great for DeSantis. Republicans who describe themselves as very conservative favored Trump by a 50-point margin, yep. 65 to 15, and that's really where DeSantis has been trying to lean. He's gotten to the right of Trump on a variety of issues, hoping that he could pick up these very conservative voters. It is not working out for no, him. No, it is certainly not working out at all. Our own Emily Jashinsky actually flagged a really interesting some uh, takeaways, I think, from here. Let's go and put this next one up there on the screen. Uh, this one, as you can sh see here, is about one of the most important things that they actually poll test in Trump v. DeSantis. Strong leader, gets things done, able to beat Joe Biden, fun, likable, and moral. So interestingly enough, DeSantis is actually beating Trump on likable and moral. But whenever it comes to strong leader, Trump is crushing DeSantis 69 to 22. Mm. In terms of get things done, it's 67 to 22. That's brutal for DeSantis because his entire case is I'm the guy who actually gets things done and not focus on the drama. But Really, to me, the one that actually just brought it all home was the fun deficit, Crystal. <laughs> Is Trump 54% fun? DeSantis, 16% fun. That is actually the biggest delta between the two. And look, politics is a show. Trump, he captivated these people. He gave That's meaning it. to their lives. He gave, them, they, he gave them the jolt that they always wanted to see somebody who pisses the people off that they hate more than anything on national television. And he gave them that gift four, day, four years, every single day, 365, every tweet that was ever sent. DeSantis, in many ways, is almost undermining that ability because 
He wants to be the guy who gets things done. He doesn't want to focus on the drama. He doesn't want to do silly season. And you know, something we've maintained here for a long time is that that's just a very wrong reading of the GOP electorate. The GOP electorate loves silly season. Mm -hmm. They actually, they love Trump. They think it's hilarious. And that comes through dramatically, really, throughout all of this, because they don't think he's likable. They know, nobody's ever thought he's likable. They don't think he's moral, but they think he's hilarious. They think he's funny. They think he's strong. And they think he can beat Joe Biden. I can't disagree with them. I can't part. disagree with them either. <laughs> That's the thing. Can you really? And, and, and anyone who is honest, who is not a self-serious, you know, it's not a self-serious, like, uh, cerebral, just like sitting there and be like, oh, the democracy and all that. On an objective basis, he's good at what he does. He's a funny guy. He's charismatic and he's hilarious. It's horrific that he's such a terrible person, yeah. but that is the reality. It is what it is. And so yeah. if you've got two guys who share basically the same ideology and one of them is funny and the other one is sort of like grating and mm -hmm. not that fun to listen to, yeah. I mean, listen, I don't want to be too hard on DeSantis because I do think that he basically read the electorate wrong in every key way. I also don't think that there is really a a way to go head to head against Trump and come out on top just because of where the Republican base is right now. We'll get some more of those numbers in just a second. Another way, though, in which DeSantis misread the Republican electorate was on making wokeness the center end all yeah, be all of his campaign. Only 24 percent of Republican voters said they would be more likely to support the candidate focused on fighting, quote, woke issues. And they did a bunch of tests of, like, wokeness versus, mm -hmm. you know, other messaging. And in every instance, the other messaging, sort of more of a focus on law and order and border, came out way on top over focusing on fighting back against wokeness. Um, they asked questions about the, the fight, basically, that uh, DeSantis is engaged in with Disney, and more people were on the side of, hey, you know, you shouldn't be using state power to go after private corporations. Uh, so and, and that was across demographic groups, across education groups. So I understand why he put that at the center, because he has a very difficult challenge trying to stitch together this coalition. And the one thing that does seem to be a glue across a very divided Republican electorate right now is concerns about, quote unquote, wokeness. But clearly, it's not enough of a concern. It doesn't feel like it touches people's lives directly enough for this to be sufficient for them to move off of Trump. Let's go ahead and put this next piece up on the screen that shows some of the um, divide within the Republican Party along really class lines. So at the top, you see you've got a MAGA base that's like 37%. Those are the people who are rock solid for Trump. You've got 37% of persuadable voters who they like Trump, but they could be maybe open to a different candidate. And then you've got 25% who are not open to Trump. Across those different categories, you have a very big class divide. So in the MAGA base, you have a much higher number who uh, do not have a college degree. Mm -hmm. You have uh, then on the open to Trump, you have a much higher number who do have a college degree. It's a majority there that have a college degree. You have near a majority there uh, among the not open to Trump who earn 100K or more. So very clear class divide in terms of which category these people sort themselves into. So uh, on the number who uh, oppose immigration reform, you see huge split between the MAGA base, it's 71%, no immigration reform, among the um, higher end you know, income and college education group that are not open to Trump, it's only 37%. You see a big divide on opposing aid to Ukraine, much more yes. popular position among the working class MAGA base. Um, this one was the most notable though, perhaps. Among the MAGA base, 80% 
say that America is in danger of failing. Among the more affluent, not open to Trump group, it is only 37 percent who say America is in danger of failing. I mean, I guess it makes sense when you yourself are doing pretty well. Mm -hmm. You probably feel pretty good about the direction that the country is heading in. You don't feel an existential risk. Whereas if you are in that um, non-college educated, more working class base, it makes sense that you would see things quite a bit more dimly than the rest. Yeah, that's right. Let's put the next part up on there on the screen because they have a very important sliding graphic here, which shows you that the MAGA base is already 37%. Then amongst the so-called persuadables, 17% of those people actually lean towards Trump. So now you just got to an outright 50%. And then amongst the rest, there are 12% others, and then really only a very slight crossover between persuadable and not open to Trump. So we've always said it, you know, it's very difficult to try and cobble these things together. I've never really believed that the coalition really existed for Ron DeSantis, just given the way that people feel about Trump. And this is just a, you know, a good confirmation of that, I think, in many ways. And the, the class divide, at this point, I almost think it's important just to stop talking about even DeSantis, many of these other people, and just look at the base as it exists and what that what why I think that they still look in favor of Trump. I mean, consider the Ukraine question. 64% of the MAGA base opposes aid to Ukraine. 58% of these persuadable voters also oppose aid to Ukraine. 26% don't in the not open to Trump. The GOP lawmakers who are vastly represented in Congress and in the Senate, whose side are they on? They're on the side of the affluent. They're on the side of the small. And these people who are not open to Trump, these are old time Republicans. These are Mitt Romney, small business owners, you know, the multimillionaires, like the guys in Florida on a nice boat and, you know, like in the in the Trump boat parade. But they don't do it because they love Trump. They really just do it to like flex the boat um, when, on <laughs> They're Instagram. They're looking for a tax Yeah, these guys have been yeah. Republicans for, you know, for decades. It's like those are the people that you need to really persuade or really should be like act being working on behalf of if you think about it in terms of coalitions. This shows me again that like there it's Trump. It's Marjorie, it's Matt Gates. I can name on the other hand, like maybe J.D. Vance at some times, like Josh Hawley, a few others. Like that's basically it in terms of their coalition that's in Congress. So no no wonder that they feel so connected to Trump because he is the really the only even spokesperson in rhetoric for so many of the things that they even come to care about. Although to be honest with you, looking at these numbers, what really comes across is it's more about the vibes than uh, a specific course, policy issue. Because yeah. even they pulled, okay, so what do you th think about Ukraine, aid to Ukraine? And even among people who are like, I support it and I support Ukraine and I wanna be there you know, indefinitely, mm -hmm they still support Donald Trump, right? I mean, on <laughs> yeah, all of these, among people who think that Social Security shouldn't be cut and among people who think it should be cut, True. they all support Trump. So I think, to me, much more at the core is the fun graphic mm -hmm. of how I, people I how people feel. He's a strong leader and I have a good time when I'm listening to him. That's what yeah. I'm really in it for. And, you know, I mean, this is not to, like, cast aspersions on the electorate, but part of how DeSantis misread the Republican base is by thinking like, oh, if I go down the issue list and I like check off the boxes and I get to Trump's right and I find the right position on all of these things and get the right answer, then people are going to come into my camp. It hasn't worked out that way. In fact, the more that he has, you know, leaned into his policy oriented message, the more people have moved on to Donald Trump. So yeah. I, I really, you know, I think what you're saying is mm. important. 
in the fact that there is a uh, failure of democracy in terms of representation in Washington, the issues that are pushed uh, by either major party in Washington, what the actual policy outcomes are. I think that is incredibly important and essential, but I don't actually think that's driving what uh, the support is in the Republican primary. There is a quote in here, though, that I think more yeah, gets to this, the point. This, this is really, um, just so people know. Why people are overwhelmingly backing Donald <laughs> Trump in the Republican primary. Let's put this up on the screen. This is from David Green, 69-year-old retail manager in Summersworth, New Hampshire. He says of Trump and why he supports him, quote, he might say mean things and make all the men cry because all the men are wearing your wife's underpants and you can't be a man anymore. You gotta be a little sissy and cry about everything. But at the end of the day, you want results. Donald Trump's my guy. He proved it on a mm. national level. Much more vibes that, because I mean, DeSantis has leaned into whatever like issues this man is gesturing at. He's very much leaned into those policy issues, but Trump it makes the more like strongman kind of case. I love this guy because he just says it out loud. Uh, he's right, by the way, in terms of like how people view things. Like that's it. That's it, what it takes away. That's why. I mean, look, I led with fun whenever I said it explained everything. There are a few other things that I do think you know tangentially apply, but fun, the appears strong, pissing the people off who I hate the most. That's pretty much always been it. So anyway, you can take know, that this away. This man may have his own issues that he's working through. <laughs> and throw that out there. Your top issue is uh, women's uh, men wearing women's underpants. Anyway, let's move on to the Biden side of the aisle because we just this morning got the New York Times Siena poll on the Democratic side, and it is also very interesting. Let's put this up on the screen. So. Biden has somewhat improved his position among Democrats, although a majority are still like, mm, we'd rather have someone other than Biden. Um, but here is the here's some of the analysis from The New York Times. They say warning signs abound for the president. Despite his improved standing and a friendlier national environment, Mr. Biden remains broadly unpopular among a voting public that is pessimistic about the country's future. And his approval rating is a mere 39%, perhaps most worryingly for Democrats, the poll found Mr. Biden in a neck and neck race with former President Donald Trump, who held a commanding lead among likely Republican primary voters, as we were just discussing, even as he faces two criminal indictments and more potential charges on the horizon. Mr. Biden and Mr. Trump were tied at 43% apiece in a hypothetical rematch in 2024, according to the poll. Now, in terms of primary support um, within this poll, Biden had the backing of 64% of Democratic primary voters who were intending on participating in the party's primaries, 13% um, were behind RFK Jr., and 10% chose Marianne Williamson. So even though you still have, and they've got some good quotes here, I'll read to you, voters who are on the Democratic side, they're not enthusiastic about Biden. Mm -hmm. They feel like they have no real choice. Um, I think that the relentless message from the party leadership and from uh, corporate media aligned with the Democratic Party that, listen, guys, Biden is effectively the only candidate in the race and we're just going to ignore these other two. I think that's worked. Um, you've got a couple of quotes here that I want to share with you. One individual who said about Trump and Biden, I'm sorry, but both of them to me are too old. Biden to me seems less mentally capable age-wise, but Trump is just evil. He's done horrible things. That is the case that the Democratic Party is hoping is going to resonate with the American public. Like, listen, you may not be in love with Joe Biden, but look at the alternative. Um, you have a... Uh, a 38-year-old woman, government analyst from Atlanta, who described herself as political pro progressive, not aligned with the party. 
who said Mr. Biden's tax policy had been skewed to favor the wealthy while the middle class paid more than its fair share. Quote, we're kind of smushed in the middle. We're taking the brunt of the taxes for everybody. She did say she'd vote for Biden again, but added she wouldn't do so with much gusto. It's basically like I don't have another choice because I don't feel comfortable not voting, she said. Yeah, I mean, on the Democratic side, it's pathetic whenever you're only getting six, two thirds or whatever people to support you. So let's just leave that aside. The most, the big headline to me was the Trump. I mean, the actual head to head one versus him. I mean, he is actually tied in this poll, Crystal, yeah, at 43% right. apiece in a rematch in 2024. That's a terrible position to be in as an incumbent president, especially two years out. You know, we really have not yet heard the full critique of Donald Trump in an actual like media circus environment of a full 2024 campaign. He theoretically should be stronger right now than he ever has been. The counter to that could be, oh, well, Biden hasn't yet made his case to the American people. I mean, my counter would be, you're the president. You get to make your case every day. Yeah. Also, you are getting older every day, which is part of the problem as to why people are very skeptical of you. I mean, this really does confirm a couple of things. Trump is still dramatically electable. As much as people mm -hmm. want to count him out, this New York Times poll, I saw a CNN story yesterday kind of preparing the liberals, just being like, guys, Trump could actually win. Yeah. And it's true. I mean, I've always said this. When you are the nominee of a major party, you can win the presidency. But then with Trump, he is always underestimated. Yes, I understand 2022 didn't go well. It's true, 2018 didn't go well either. But he won the freaking presidency. You can't deny it. He only he lost 44,500 votes. And I just checked, the 2020 poll that came out uh, October 2020, see New York Times Siena, is actually a poll historically biased against Trump in terms of his favor. They had Biden up 51 to 42 yeah. in the last poll of October wow. 2020. So if they have him tied, Trump-Biden, I'm giving Trump plus four. Historically, that's what it usually has come down to. Didn't seem to work in 2022, but to me, that was because Trump himself wasn't on the ballot. This man, he's like a magician. Like I don't know what it exactly it is, but in terms of getting people actually to the polls to come out to vote, he seems singularly enabled to do that as a politician. It's one of the rarest things you'll ever see in politics. So I have yeah. that CNN piece yeah. from Harry Anton, who's like their He's data good. guy, yeah. um, analysis of the polls and the headline that he has here is the chance of Trump winning another term is very real. Yeah. And one of the things he says that I think people really need to internalize, Trump is not only in a historically strong position for a non-incumbent to win the Republican nomination, but he is in a better position to win the general election that at any point during the 2020 cycle and almost at any point during the 2016 cycle. Keep in mind, with Donald Trump in 2016, he was almost always pulling behind Hillary. With Biden in 2020, it looked like it was gonna be a blowout if you were just looking at the polls. He has very rarely been looking at polls where he was actually in the poll itself tied with his Democratic opponent. So now listen, he's facing a number of other charges. He's gonna be going to trial before this election. He could be facing prison time. That's a very real possibility. And I have to think that that is not gonna be an easy thing for him to be able to overcome. So there are a lot of wild cards out there, but I think people need to take very seriously the fact that Joe Biden is an extraordinarily weak Democratic nominee for all the people out there who are really concerned about electability, you know, and if, if God forbid, in my opinion, Donald Trump gets reelected, they need to take a really, really 
uh, critical lens to the Democratic Party and the fact that they shut this process out. They did not allow voters to have a choice. They said, you have to be stuck with this man that an overwhelming majority of Americans are like, this guy's just too old. Yeah. I, look, I mean, it's been obvious from day one. They're playing with fire. You know, if they believe that Trump is an existential, which they say all the time, who knows if it's whether they believe it or not. Well, if you lose, it's your fault. 100% it's on you. And more and more that I'm reading, Crystal, uh, while Stop the Steal is a problem, while the criminal cases are a problem, you know, we, I, every, any, every one of us can ins recite the litany of problems. He's a strong politician, man. Yeah. When it comes through, like, anytime we see, like, a very serious look at his real support, against Biden, specifically in the swing states and all that, I always come away with the same thought of this man, he's getting awful close to the Oval Office right now, especially when you peg it to how the media and all these other people are painting his chances. And yeah. so look, be a fool and count him out if you want to. Yeah. But, you know, I, I would not advise it. The one thing that I'll put on the other side of that equation for Joe Biden is, um, you know, the economy does seem to be improving. Inflation does seem to be yeah. going down. Although, you know, if you ask American voters, they still are not feeling it really in terms of an improved economy. The mood is very, very negative. Um, but, you know, my instinct is that the charges and the, the criminal jeopardy for Trump, while it doesn't matter in a Republican primary, could be damaging to him in a general election. But on the other hand, I mean, it's not like it's people don't in. know yeah. what he did on January 6th. It's not like people don't know um, that he's facing these charges, et cetera. So, uh, listen, it's a jump ball right now. I think that's all we can say. And I, to me, yes, it speaks to the strength of Trump as a politician, but... For me, Trump's success and very near success in 2020 has always been um, a, a deep reflection of how weak uh, the Democratic Party is and how little they live up to their promises and actually deliver for people. So I think it's pathetic well that said. they should be in this position going into this election season. Let's move on to another piece on the Democratic side, which is uh, continued questions and maybe answers about Hunter Biden, his business dealings, and critically, because this is the part that really, really matters, the involvement of his father, the president of the United States, Joe Biden. So yesterday, one of Hunter's former business partners, Devin Archer, who was involved in the whole Burisma situation, he was on Capitol Hill to testify. And what he said directly undercut what Joe Biden's line has always been about his lack of involvement in Hunter Biden's business. He said he never even talked to Hunter about his business dealings. Well, Devin Archer has a different story. He says Hunter would quite often, many times, put Joe on speakerphone with his business associates to try to basically sell the Biden brand and leverage his famous powerful last name into his own um, business dealings. Uh, Democratic Representative uh, Dan Goldman was asked about this after the, the hearings. Let's take a listen to how he spun those revelations. It was clear the, that it was as part of the daily conversations that Hunter Biden had with his father. Um, and it was, and, and sounded like most of the time, uh, now President Biden didn't even know who the people he was at dinner. He was just asked to say hello. Uh, and he would, you know, talk about the, the way he described it several times. They asked over and over and over. He described what the weather was, how, uh, how, what's going on on your end. He, the, the witness was very, very consistent that none of those conversations ever had to do with any business dealings or transactions. They were purely what he called casual conversations. Oh, okay. 
Incredible. Incredible. Cool. And uh, we are expected to believe in, in his telling of events that the president of the United States is so naive that he doesn't know what's going on right. in these conversations. And they expect the American people to be so naive to buy this version of events. And they also expect us to completely, like, you know, erase our memories of Biden saying that none of this ever happened. Crystal, he said he never spoke to him once on the phone. He, and this guy's like, oh, well, they were just talking about the weather. You just said they talked for how many times? The story significantly he completely shifted. changed the goalposts. Put this up there on the screen also from Fox News. Devin Archer actually, uh, whenever he was uh, present in front of the uh, in front of the committee, unfortunately, it was actually behind closed doors. So I really would like to uh, see the transcript of that hearing. I am calling on them to, quote, release the transcript. And look, I've always said this too with Archer. He's an unsavory character in his own right. He's facing jail time. But he was there at the center of all of these deals. And one of the reasons I feel like I'm growing nuts, Crystal, mm -hmm. is I, you know, I've been covering this for almost five years. I actually looked through my notes. I did a monologue on Rising September 24th, 2020, which detailed every single one of the allegations that Devin Archer made behind the closed door mm -hmm. at this hearing about the Russian billionaire who transferred money there, about, it was, for, actually the source material was the 2020 GOP Oversight Committee report, which detailed all of this and which Joe Biden then denied on September, I believe it was 25th, somewhere around then, at the very first presidential debate. This has been out in the open for years. I mean, I actually, so I also went back and checked. I did an interview with Peter Schweitzer, who wrote the book on Hunter Biden on, on March 14th, 2019, over at Rising. And every single detail about BHG Partners, Devin Archer, China, Ukraine, and Burisma is listed in that interview. So it's like, this has all been present in the public sphere before Joe Biden was even a declared candidate. Right. let alone the president. So it's like, how are we still litigating this and never have gotten to the actual bottom of it until now, August 1st, 2023? Like, that's the absurd part to me rather than the facts. I mean, Archer saying, I put the guy on the phone. Like, I put the guy, of course, he obviously did. Archer testifying that Burisma hired Hunter uh, for the, quote, Biden brand, and everyone's like, oh, what a shocking Is it shocking? Like, we need Devin Archer to testify to that? Right. Yeah, well, why like, does the guy get $83,000 a month? Okay, it's not shocking to anybody. Yeah. We knew consistently that Biden had met, at the very least, had been testified to by eyewitnesses with business partners. So it's like, to me, this is only confirmation of facts on the, that we have known for years at this point. So it's just, it's really repulsive to me to see Goldman and all of them not admit the very basic truth. I mean, there's only one honest interpretation of this. Biden lied straight up on the debate stage, on the campaign trail, as president of the United States and White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki and Karine Jean-Pierre both told lies about Hunter's business dealings from the podium and the story period, if we are to believe this testimony. And not only this testimony, multiple other corroborating reports, the text message, you know, that has come out. It's like all of this, it's just, it's absurd that they can still try and stick to their original. I mean, it was always very plain on its face that the most charitable interpretation of Hunter's business dealings is that he was using the Biden. I mean, there was right. never any right. other possible explanation, right. right? Remember how he was like on the Amtrak board because of he quote road trains. Yeah. He something? liked the train. <laughs> like, okay, yeah, yeah, that's what that's how what gets you on that board. It was <laughs> always really obvious. And I'll never forget when we asked Congressman Ted Lieu oh, about these dealings, and he's like, Yeah, They're people famous. will sit on boards and they earn salaries right. as if as if that's totally fine. Now, listen, 
That may not be illegal, although I do think some of his potential unregistered lobbying for foreign governments is something that deserves a lot of scrutiny and may be illegal. But, you know, unfortunately, leveraging your political connections and parlaying them into lucrative financial positions may not be illegal, number one. Number two, I'd like to see Republicans apply some of the same scrutiny to their own activities and dealings totally. and those of Donald Trump. Um, but Biden has really caught himself here and, and backed himself into a corner by stating so unequivocally that he never even spoke to Hunter about those. Mm -hmm. And it's just that part, it's gone. Like, it's very clear that that's a lie at this point. You got this other piece. There was um, Devin Archer uh, apparently, you know, reportedly testified that Biden had met with this Russian oligarch who uh, was also, you know, involved in, in potential business deals. And there were questions about why this particular Russian oligarch did not end up getting sanctioned. Karine Jean-Pierre refused to answer a question about this from the podium. Let's take a listen to that. Uh, regarding Russia's sanctions, I'm wondering if you could uh, share the reason why President Biden hasn't sanctioned the Russian billionaires uh, Vladimir Yevtushenkov and Yelena Batarina. Um, how, how is he handling the conflict of interest there, given his son was a business associate of these two people? And can you confirm that as sitting vice president, he dined with Batarina in Georgetown? I, I'm just not speaking to um, anything that's related to his son from here. If you want to if you want to ask a question about uh, Hunter Biden specifically, I would refer you to his family. So just continuing to stonewall here, Shocker. complete BS. You know, once again, I'm li I literally have the notes right here in front of me, as I wrote at that time. In a payment included a $3.5 million wire transfer from Elena Baturina, the richest woman in all of Russia, conveniently the wife of the former mayor of Moscow, business associations with individuals who are linked to the Chinese Communist Party and the People's Liberation Army of China. It's all it's all been in the public record. Yeah. Everyone knows this. And it's like, you know, Stephen, a friend of the show, a great reporter, you know, at least has the cojones to ask about this and to get them on the record. But it's like the, uh, the level of obviousness of which what was testified here, that the Biden brand was being sought by Burisma, of course, that Biden had been on the phone now with Hunter Biden Associates. And the thing is about Dan Goldman is now Goldman is dropping the only defense that the White House ever had. I never talked to him about business, which was ridiculous and a farce on its face, but never had any real credible testimony. Archer has been saying this. Tony Bobolinsky came forward in what, I mean, it was October, I believe, of 2020 and said, yeah, what are you talking about? I met with Joe Biden. I literally, all of this, all of the core allegation, the facts, everything has been here now for years. And, you know, still, the media is either un, is either downplaying it or, I mean, really what it was shocked me with Goldman is like, I'm like, wait, he just admitted it. Like he said, he admitted the quiet part out loud. Yeah. Like he says, Biden talked to him on the phone. And it's like you said, Crystal, even if they were just talking about the weather, which I don't believe, uh, let's say that they were. When you are able to dial somebody up in a meeting to flex your relationship with them and put them on the phone with business partners, that's worth a lot of money. Mm -hmm. If he's trying to close a deal and he says, yeah, I've got juice. And they're like, yeah, what kind of juice you got? And he goes, I can get my dad on the phone anytime I want. And you're sitting in a cafe in China or you're sitting in a cafe in Italy, which both of these happen, just so you're aware. And he dials his dad up in the middle of the night or whatever. And his dad probably answers because he's terrified. His son's probably going on a crack binge again. But you're doing that to flex the fact that you have such a 
deep relationship with the guy, that's still corruption, you know, regardless. And Biden, you know, you said, he's not stupid. He's been in the game for a long he, time. He, knows he knew exactly what Hunter was doing when this was all going down. Yeah, I think yeah. I think there's no, it's hard to come up with a another plausible explanation right. here. Um, so we've got some uh, some interesting media coverage of Devin Archer's testimony and what this all means for Joe Biden. Let's take a listen to how they are portraying the facts. So Goldman sort of explaining that Archer qualified uh, the, the topics of discussion on these phone calls as niceties that Biden sometimes didn't even know who was um, in, on the other line with his son Hunter. And, you know, sources in the room telling CNN now that Archer did not point the finger directly at any sort of a connection between Joe Biden and his son's foreign business dealings and rather, you know, um, said that he was, that Hunter Biden was selling the illusion of said access. Boris? Really a stunning development, Zach, when you consider that Republicans were selling this as, as a breakthrough that would link Hunter's business dealings with his father. Instead, business was apparently never discussed, according to Devin Archer. Zach Cohen, thanks so much for the reporting. Right, that's the takeaway. Right. Got it. Yeah. So we're Come either, on. we're either like supposed to believe that the president of the United States is such a fool that he had no idea what was going on with these many phone calls with Hunter's business associates, or they're wildly, you know, he lied and they are still wildly misrepresenting what really happened here. I mean, listen, have Republicans put their finger on like Joe Biden directly financially benefiting from Hunter's business? No, they haven't. They have not gotten any, you know, smoking gun evidence with regard to that. But do they have pretty clear evidence that Joe Biden has lied to the American people about how all this went down and, you know, the, the at least verbal involvement of him with his uh, son's business dealings? Yes. Yeah. I mean, this is where the semantics of it just become absurd to me. If uh, my I have a little sister, if my little sister was trading off my name in the way that James Biden was trading off of his and used a hundred thousand dollars slush fund to buy herself a laptop through a deal with the Chinese Communist Party. Party, and not just buy herself a laptop, but for all of my nieces and nephews and possibly even my, ch and oh, in, in conjunction, by the way, with one of my children. Yeah, I think I did financially benefit from that. I mean, by any common understanding of family corruption, they obviously benefited from it. So did Biden's actual bank account get any money? I don't know. I mean, I actually still think it's possible. But, you know, in the... I think we even said this at the time, Crystal. It's almost very like third world in the way that this entire thing went down. Yeah. Like the way that it works in a developing world is, you know, you never pay, sometimes you pay somebody off directly, but usually it's like, ah, uh, you pay my uncle, you pay my cousin. Uh, the cousin will, you know, facilitate. It's like in uh, Narcos, Mexico, whenever the, the the defense minister of Mexico, he's like, you don't deal with me, you deal with my nephew. My The nephew is the one who is like the bank transfer guy between the cartels and the government. I mean, you know, with modern mon money laundering and FBI stings and all of that, like even in the rest of the world, briefcases full of cash and all that stuff doesn't happen. It's But it is still obvious in any familial like network ties that if you are going to mansions paid for with corrupt cash, you benefited from that. We understand that, right, whenever it comes to private jets, but why don't we understand it whenever your quality of life and all the people around you is directly affected by this corruption, then to me, and I, again, in any common public understanding of that, I understand not legally, then you clearly did financially benefit from these transactions. Republicans, you know, they're doing this for political reasons. They clearly don't like really care about corruption on its face. Sure. They don't say shit about Donald Trump. Like right. all of that can be true. And it can also be true that the conduct here from the president of the United States is a problem.
Right. And it's something that the mainstream press should be digging into rather than trying to give excuses and, you know, spin this testimony yesterday, which was really bad for the president and did reveal uh, lies that he's told the American people, try to spin this as like a loss for Republicans. And also, I just, you know, uh, why are you, why play into their game where they want this just to be about like scoring points against President Biden in this like partisan battle? Why play their game? Why not just actually look at the facts when it pertains to Trump, when it pertains to Biden? I mean, that's certainly what we try to do here. Uh, obviously, yeah. And, you know, for all of the what ifs, you can search breaking points, uh, Jared Kushner, Saudi, if you're interested. Hey, listen, yesterday yeah, yeah. we were talking about Trump bilking his supporters right. for $65 friggin million dollars in legal fees. You are welcome to search uh, Steve Mnuchin, Trump, Saudi, uh, Jared Kushner, <laughs> Saudi, uh, you know, like, all of the America First Policies Institute, you know, billionaires. I was like, we could go into it forever. And that's that's the way that it should be. Okay, let's go to the next part here. Uh, some interesting developments going on um, in Ukraine. Obviously, Crystal alluded to this, but there have been multiple drone strikes now uh, by the Ukrainians on the city of Moscow, kind of just becoming a routine development. I guess all us all just hope that, uh, you know, they, they continue to just strike buildings and, you know, if they don't kill the wrong guy and that way launches us all into a massive conflict. But there was a piece of news buried actually within a New York Times expose, uh, not even expose per se, more like a profile of Elon Musk and of Starlink, which revealed not only the Ukrainian reliance on Starlink, but also Elon's personal intervention here into the conflict, which does say a lot about our society. So let's go ahead and put this up there on the screen. Elon apparently is personally intervening in the war and vetoing access to its services for Ukrainian military to facilitate operations that he personally does not approve of. So as an example, that they give here. They say that Mr. Musk expressed fears that Ukraine would use Starlink not just to defend itself, but also to conduct offensive operations to regain territory seized by Russia, which would cause significant military casualties. Uh, and this was actually personally intervened then by the Biden administration to call him. Uh, let's go to the next one that actually shows you. Starlink access since then has, quote, fluctuated depending on the movements of the war in Russia as Russia won territory and Ukraine fought to take it back. As battle lines shifted, Musk has used a process called geofencing to restrict where Starlink is available on the front line. SpaceX uses this location data by its service to enforce then geofencing limits. This has caused problems when Ukrainian troops tried retaking cities like Kherson in the Russian-controlled areas in the fall. They needed internet access to communicate, members of the armed forces message Mr. Musk requests to restore service in areas where the army was advancing. So it's uh, it's funny because there are several elements to this. On the one hand, you could be like, oh, this is capricious. On the other, uh, Starlink is being provided for free to the Ukrainian military. And they call it the backbone of their, you know, of their uh, military operations. So if they want some terms of dictation or whatever with what's going on, then you should pay for it. Uh, that's number one. Two, uh, you know, you are welcome in many cases to go get some ISR, which is intelligence and surveillance and reconnaissance of your own. If you could afford it, you can't because the U.S. is the one who's paying all of your bills. So. I've seen Elon take a tremendous amount of criticism for this, Crystal, mm -hmm. but if he does personally own the company and they, he's providing them a service for free, then in my mind, it's like, well, okay, well then why shouldn't his opinion matter? Like if you're paying for it, then that's one thing. You know, we can have a negotiation here and still obviously he can do what he wants, but they're not even paying for it. They're literally getting it for free. And then, you know, 
the U.S. military and apparently Ukrainian military are so wholly reliant in a single point of failure, which is a private company in the whims of the guy who changed freaking Twitter to X. It's like, yeah. well, what are you surprised by? At this point in the conflict, why haven't you invested in something else? So that's a whole other conversation. I think it's a big meta problem that uh, is it, worth discussing. It is a big meta problem. Yeah. And I really would like people to try to put aside how they specifically feel about Elon Musk and how they specifically feel about what the right or wrong policy is with regard to Ukraine. We should not be outsourcing key state <laughs> functions to <laughs> any one person, period. Because, like, you know, when, when he gave access to uh, Ukraine to Starlink, like, right. he's celebrated, but then you didn't realize that you were then giving him a say in the in what your foreign policy as the supposedly mm -hmm. most powerful nation on the planet what your foreign policy is i mean you're basically like putting that in his hands that's insane that is malpractice yeah that's your fault that right? so we should not be outsourcing key government state functions of you know statecraft and warcraft to uh one person whether you like him or hate him or feel indifferent about him or think he makes good decisions or bad decisions or whatever so I, the part of this piece that actually really uh, struck home for me is they quoted this tweet from Elon from back in April where he says, quote, between Tesla, Starlink, and Twitter, I may have more real-time global, global economic data in one head than anyone ever. That may be true. I think he's right, And <laughs> I really want us to take in the fact that this one individual, again, however you feel about him, and I certainly made my feelings and you know analysis of his business decisions clear, but however you feel about him, he is deeply integral to at least three really key industries in our society. Tesla, I mean, the move towards EV vehicles, this is a central component of the Biden administration policy, a central push in terms of people who care about climate change, and he has huge market share there. Starlink, I think this is case in point of why you know, he's got a huge number of satellites. The number in here, what is it? He's got like more than half of the satellites mm -hmm. that are orbiting our Earth are Elon Musk satellites. That seems like it's pretty significant. Um, and Twitter, and now that he, or X, whatever, uh, you know, he has bought and now controls a key part of our communications infrastructure and something that is, you know, bedrock to our democracy and our town square, et cetera, et cetera. So this one individual has um, so much power in so many sectors. I'm not sure people have really wrapped their head around yeah. it. Yeah, and then just don't be surprised then whenever that individual flexes that power based upon their whims, especially when you're not paying for it. You know, it's like, that's the one that really, and it's especially graded me. You know, it's like, like you said, he was celebrated whenever he gave it to him for free. And then they didn't realize that, you know, there is no such thing as a free lunch. Meanwhile, obviously the war in Ukraine continues to become brutal. The Russians really showing us all who they are. Let's put this up there on the screen. Just a barbaric attack yesterday. There was a missile strike actually on Zelensky's hometown, which killed six civilians, including a 10-year-old girl and her mother. It's always important just to remember that this level of barbarism happens on a daily basis. Then, of course, you know, Ukraine is retaliating. And then, of course, that singular missile strike was done, Crystal, because Zelensky went on Twitter and issued effectively battle plans for retaking Crimea. We're in a vicious, you know, cycle. And this was meant to be a personal rebuke against President Zelensky as well. 
Let's also not forget this. Let's put this up there on the screen. Uh, the Kremlin actually just yesterday threatened the use of nuclear weapons in retaliation for the drone strike on Moscow skyscrapers. They warned, quote, there is no other way out after attacks on the business district that closed Russian airspace and left one injured. Closing Russian airspace, by the way, is no joke. You know, I've just recently been taking flights to India back and forth. The disruption over that airspace is one of the most critical areas for mm. specifically European flights to uh, East Asia and also the long haul flights that come from the East Coast of the United States that usually fly over this. It's not only has caused multiple cancellations, but the uncertainty and all of that. I mean, we all know the Malay, I forget, what was it, Malaysian Flight 4, I forget, that got shot down over Ukraine not, I mean, not that long ago. It's almost like, I think it was like about a decade ago uh, because some Russian separatists thought that it was, uh, I forget exactly what they thought it was. But the point being, you know, hundreds of civilians were killed. So it's creating a tremendous amount of uncertainty in this entire conflict. We've got little kids getting killed in apartment buildings, you know, in, in terms of a retaliation. Yeah. And then we've got, you know, drone strikes on the freaking business district in downtown Moscow. I mean, that's what I said at the beginning of, of this entire discussion, uh, which is it only takes one guy to get killed and things change completely. They don't know who they're going to hit. They could hit, you know, somebody who's like the cousin of whatever, some person who's very special uh, up in there and the whole conflict could change completely overnight. So anyway, you know, it's always just a reminder that like there's a tremendous amount of uncertainty and risk and you know, trauma and all that that actually comes to a real war. It's not just a video game that people yeah. are playing on Twitter. I mean, it's yeah. literally a live fire exercise. Right. And so the, it appears that the Ukrainians have been trying to target these sort of like symbolic targets, ministries. Um, you've had little in the way of casualties in terms of these attacks directly on Moscow right now. I mean, their intent is to terror, terrorize the citizenry. And mm -hmm. I think that's really the intent. You can see some of the videos that people post and, um, you know, them screaming in terror as they see drone strikes on their city. And it's understandable when you consider the horror that the Russians have inflicted on Ukrainian civilians. Um, you know, so we're, I'm not saying that these are like on the same level, but there's a lot going on in Russia domestically right now with uh, moves being made by their legislative bodies to try to, you know, uh, potentially have a martial law to mm -hmm. try to potentially have another round of recruitment. And if Ukrainians, if Zelensky thinks that these drone strikes on Moscow are going to, you know, force the Kremlin to the table and, you know, make the, the Russian population really reject this, this war, I think that's very foolish. I don't think that that's likely to be the outcome. So ultimately, you're just playing with fire here and risking a broader conflagration. And maybe that is the real point for the Ukrainians. Yeah, well, that's smart. And uh, look, who knows? We'll continue to keep everybody updated. Let's go to the next part. Uh, this is a wild story, one that we uh, actually spent hours kind of trying to dig you into this. You went down this rabbit hole. I was just like, what the hell is going on? Is this as insane weird one. as it appears on the surface? And the answer actually is yes. So let's put this up there. Uh, the first person to flag it to me was Kyle Bass, who put out this tweet. Uh, and we're gonna go through some of the uh, actual allegations in here. He says, quote, an illegal secret Chinese bioagent lab has been raided by the FBI, the CDC, and California Public Health Department in Fresno County, California. The CDC's Division of Select Agents found infectious, bacteri infectious bacterial and viral agents at the site, which was listed as an empty building. 
bioagents included malaria, rubella, and HIV. He continues, chlamydia, E. coli, numerous other types, hepatitis B and C, herpes one and five. The lab had, quote, 900 genetically engineered mice designed to carry various COVID strains living in inhumane conditions with another 175 that were actually found dead. Okay. So let's look at the actual details, and it appears actually that many of them do add up. So let's go to the NBC News report. So the NBC News report specifically did not uh, put the, uh, they did not ascribe the origin and the connections to the Chinese Communist Party in this, but they do actually confirm something key. One, this was an illegal, unlicensed laboratory full of lab mice, full of medical waste, and full of hazardous material. The Fresno County Public Health Department, quote, evaluated and assessed the activities of this unlicensed lab. And what they found is that with multiple state and federal agencies determined biological and chemical cons con uh, contents that were actually on site, including coronavirus, HIV, hepatitis, and herpes. So they actually confirmed, you know, some of the... Uh, some of the actual chemicals and the biological strains and many of the others that were present there on site. Then you have to go down like a bit of a deeper rabbit hole here. And this was a fascinating view actually from public local news. This is why we do still need local news, Crystal, yeah. because they have uh, great investigations. Let's put this up there. They say, quote, I have never seen anything like this illegal medical lab discovered in Reedley. This is from yourcentralvalley.com. What they point to is uh, the city manager, actually, of the property says that she's never seen this in her 26-year career, career in the county of Fresno. We had 800 different types of chemicals and all of that, which were on site. But eventually what comes through is that the tenant was a company called Prestige Biotech, and this has now since been confirmed, that was registered in Nevada, but was actually unlicensed for business in California. So the company's president is a Chinese citizen who they were only able to speak with uh, via emails, which were actually included in the court documents. And quote, other addresses provided as authorized agents for these empty offices were addresses in China that could not then be verified. Also, agents found thousands of package boxes, many with shipping labels from China, which were included in the court documents. Uh, so what was this lab doing? in Fresno County, California. What's happening with this? And the craziest part, nobody knows. Right. Who is this company? Who is this Chinese guy? Where are, why, how did they get a permit for all this stuff? Did it come through legally or illegally in customs? And then what were they studying in this? So this is one of the most bizarre, uh, odd things that has happened. You know, we, there's obviously been a lot of skepticism and, and allegation and discussion around Wuhan, but you know, at least that one was a level, you know, it's level four safety bio lab run by the Chinese government. This is some sketchy company in the middle of Fresno doing God knows what with who knows amount of unregulated yeah. chemicals. And the why question has still yet to be answered despite multiple people in California trying to get to the bottom of this. Yeah, from what I could read in the court documents. It's a wild story. And they the authorities just sort of stumbled upon this. Yeah, exactly. A city inspector saw a garden hose that was like in a place <laughs> a garden hose isn't supposed to be, which I didn't really know that they regulated where garden hoses could be, but apparently Probably that's in thing. industrial in areas they do. Building, yeah. they were like, you can't have right. that garden hose there. What else is going on? And then they go into this supposedly empty warehouse building and find all of this crazy stuff. Um, 
they, in terms of what the uh, owner of this company, Prestige Biotech, is saying, he told officials that Prestige Biotech moved assets that were that belonged to a defunct company called Universal Meditech Inc. to that warehouse from Fresno after that other company went under. Prestige Biotech was a creditor to that other company and identified as its successor, according to court documents. Uh, officials were unable to get any California-based address for either company except for the previous Fresno location from which UMI had been evicted. So basically the story from the owner of this sketchy biotech company is that they had uh, acquired this other defunct biotech company, that this these were the assets from that one and they just were sort of like storing them there right. randomly is basically the idea. But I mean, you think about like live mice included in this? I don't know. It's a, it is a wild one. I have no idea what's going on with this, but it is really weird. Yeah. I mean, I think what has kind of come through is that clearly, I mean, the thing is too, is that the pictures, like you could see, can we throw the first one up there just so people get an idea? I mean, this all, I mean, I would have believed if they had told me that it was like a meth lab or some sort of drug lab. As you can see from, I mean, it's filthy. There's stuff everywhere. There's Clearly it's not clean. Gloves uh, hanging gloves out Gloves just hanging out, yeah. you know, beakers and all this. I mean, it genuinely does look like it, it could, you know, come out of a drug den or out of a movie. And yet you find out that we're talking about like viral agents, infectious bacterial, filthy mice in conditions. And then the, you know, the, I, the why question is the one that just continues to abound from all of this. So yeah, like you said, uh, and they stumbled across it somehow. I mean, what's really actually kind of terrifying to me is that none of this was flagged through customs because allegedly all of, we are supposed to have very stringent regulation on age, you know, chemical agents, viral agents, bacteria, and all this stuff mm -hmm. that comes into the United States. And it's especially supposed to be very high on China. Mm -hmm. Now, the problem is, is that China makes the vast majority of inputs for a lot of our drugs, but they do come in via a relatively regulated process. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons why that we're supposed to look very hard at the unregulated market is that Chinese fentanyl is probably responsible for the vast majority of opioid deaths here in the United States. And that's the reason why the drug cartels, they don't make those drugs here in America, they make it in Mexico where the export controls is much more corrupt effectively in order to get it into the country. That's the whole point. So then my question is like, well, how the hell did they even get this? Well, but we don't you know, necessarily the, know that it came from, that the materials came from China. Well, the shipping boxes came from China. So, I mean, yeah, you're right. Maybe they shipped it to Mexico and they drove it across the border. I mean, we've genuinely- I mean, We have no idea where this stuff was acquired from whatsoever. I mean, that could be too, that it was shipped. We just don't know. And right. the thing to me, that doesn't pass the sniff test about the the, the story that mm. this was, you know, they're basically just storing this stuff in, here after this other company went defunct or whatever. When you look at those pictures, I mean, this isn't just like things in storage boxes. You've yeah, got exactly. a whole lab set up there. You've got the gloves there. You've you got things setup. in beakers. You've got stuff that's on the table. I don't know. It doesn't look like you were just like, oh, let me put it in storage and then, I don't know, dispose yeah. of it somehow, do something with it. It's right. a weird one. And also the, you know, creating front companies and all that in order to justify illegal export, import. That's a time-honored kind of Chinese tradition 
for, you know, I've, I've, re I've read and done some dives into Chinese fentanyl business. It's almost exactly the same in terms of like, oh, you have a defunct company, a fake address in China. And in terms of, whenever you're trying to, you know, trace it well, back and be is, like, where did this come it's from? It's not a Chinese specific phenomenon. This yeah, is what course. sketchy businessmen do yes. all around the world, Correct. including here in the good old US of A. Fair <laughs> enough. Yeah. Maybe they probably stole it from, they probably stole the tactic from us. So, you know, don't, don't let anyone say that they didn't steal the best. Mm -hmm. uh, let's go to the next part here. Crystal being very gracious and allowing me to give everyone an update um, on the UFO phenomenon. Uh, so we updated everybody about the hearing, uh, about what happened. Dave Grush came forward and made some extraordinary allegations. Crystal, one of the things that you asked me was, uh, what do you think of all this? Like, what, what are we to make of all this? Yeah. And what I said is it's important uh, for to get this on the record and to create a binary. I think creating the binary is the most important thing. Uh, is it true or is it not true? He's entered this under oath in the congressional record. We also have a previous director of the program, the Aero program, coming forward and saying there's no evidence of extraterrestrials, there's no evidence of any of these hidden craft retrievable sites, any of the stuff that Dave Grush has alleged before. Uh, just to give people a flashback to that, that was Dr. Sean Kirkpatrick, uh, who is directly at odds now with Grush's testimony. Here's what he said a couple of months ago before to Congress. I should also state clearly for the record that in our research, Arrow has found no credible evidence thus far of extraterrestrial activity, off-world technology, or objects that defy the known laws of physics. In the event sufficient scientific data were ever obtained that a UAP encountered can only be explained by extraterrestrial origin, we are committed to working with our interagency partners at NASA to appropriately inform U.S. government's leadership of its findings. So, Crystal... After Dave Grush gave testimony uh, at that hearing, which directly contradicted what he said, and which he said that Grush also said that he had brought forward these allegations to Kirkpatrick, a very odd letter began to circulate. It appears that Kirkpatrick circumvented Pentagon's, the Pentagon's like official framework for releasing statements mm -hmm. and released a statement of his own accord on his LinkedIn page. Weird. Respond, yeah, very odd. This does not happen in the government and does not happen in the Department of Defense, of which I used to cover. I've never seen anything like this in my entire career. So here's the letter that he put out. Uh, again, he is saying, quote, they've either his personal observations and opinions and do not represent the DOD or the IC positions, IC being the intelligence community. Long letter here, effectively saying that he's very proud of his team. Uh, and he says, quote, I cannot let yesterday's hearing pass without sharing how insulting it was to the officers of the Department of Defense and Intelligence Committee who chose, chose to join Arrow, many not unreasonable anxieties about the career risk that this would entail. So he specifically, in this letter, calls Grush a liar. He says, contrary to assertions made in the hearing, the central source of those allegations has refused to speak with Arrow. Furthermore, some information reportedly provided to Congress has not been provided to Arrow, raising additional questions about the true commitment to transparency by some congressional elements. So I'm gonna zero in on that and kind of let all of the other stuff go because the important thing that is, has come out from here is he is claiming very matter-of-factly, not necessarily under oath, remember that, and also not uh, through the official meeting, so I'm through the official process, so I don't really know what to make of it, but he effectively is saying Dave Grush is lying because Grush said at the hearing that he had provided materials, evidence, and all of that to the program, to the Aero program that was reviewing the past record of UFO knowledge, you know, files and all that stuff. And that the reason he became a whistleblower is because it was not taken seriously and that it was buried. So 
we're basically uh, in, we're in now an almost total like yes or no question. Like one of these people is lying yeah. and lied to Congress. What did you make yeah. of this part at the very end? He says uh, in this statement on his LinkedIn, also to be clear, none of the whistleblowers from yesterday's hearing ever worked for Arrow or was ever a representative to Arrow, contrary right. to statements made in testimony and in the media. So he's also, am yeah, I right, asserting uh, that Grush is even lying about what positions he held? Uh, from what I read, there are some technicalities in terms of the way that Grush described his uh, attachment to the program, not necessarily so what he didn't like directly the program. For him, so they're using yeah, some sort of exactly. legalistic language here? There's two ways to read it. You know, I, and again, this is not a vetted statement by the Pentagon. This is not, right. you know, it's not officially, this is just him, something that he put out on his LinkedIn page. But he's basically saying, I don't know this guy. He never brought any of this stuff forward. He's a liar. He never made any of it clear. He didn't even work for me. I mean, each one of those is extraordinary in itself. I mean, he's effectively, he, the only place where he's not given himself out is saying that he was never shared those materials. Because now it's straight up, like, did Grush lie or not? And listen, we really have no way of knowing. This is why it's so difficult actually to look at these two things because remember that the Grush report, I mean, it's not like he just came forward to the New York Times. He went through the internal whistleblower process in the Department of Defense, which the Inspector General of the Intelligence Community said that they found credible and urgent and bearing investigation. So it was vetted at the very least in some way, you know, at least from what we're seeing. Much of what he said, even at the hearing, was said in an unclassified setting of which not has been cleared by the department, but of which has not been restricted from saying out mm -hmm. in the open. He says that he provided, you know, all of these uh, materials to Congress for investigation into the specific allegations about these programs and all of us. So, I mean, I'm, I'm like, even though I thought that this was an incredibly bizarre event, I'm happy that it happened because, and I, you know, I've, I, it probably sucks for Grush and many of these other people to be called a liar, is because now, now we actually really have to find out. Because, you know, he Kirkpatrick had given himself some outs in the past. He said, oh, we don't have any evidence. Oh, there's a lot of different ways that you could spin that, you know, whether he lied to Congress or not. But this one is such a direct and a personal statement yeah. saying he's a liar. Uh, and let's put this uh, Daily Mail piece up on the screen because this included also quotes from very confused members of Congress um, who actually saw it. So for example, Anna Paulina Luna, who is one of the uh, Congresswomen who has been re really at the side of uh, Tim Burchett on all of this. Here's what she said. She said, it's crazy to me that they would try to discredit them. The fact that Kirkpatrick just tried to discredit also the other two witnesses that were legitimate pilots for the military that had the gimbal and the Tic Tac videos were confirmed by DOD is the exact reason why I think people don't trust Arrow. The evidence was brought forward by multiple veterans who had confirmed the video footage of the Tic Tac and the gimbal of advanced technologies that does exist. The DOD even admitted it, like, what are you talking about? That actually you know, highlights what you said, you know, the very odd part at the end, whenever he's like, well, none of these three witnesses all worked for us. And it's like, well, let's put Grush aside. The other two never claimed to ever work for the mm -hmm. program. They were just like, yeah, I flew planes and I had a UFO encounter. Yeah, you know, so it, this was very much aimed at Grush. This was absolutely aimed at Grush. Yeah. Uh, which was why I thought it was bizarre that he also tried to kind of take umbrage at Fravor and at Graves' testimony, who, I mean, they didn't even really say anything about Arrow. Anyway, the reason why I wanted to highlight it is just that clearly we are in a situation now where one of these individuals is telling the truth. Yeah. And it's actually, frankly, should be easier now at this point to figure it out. And right. I implore these people, these members of Congress, like, please find out and update us in a very, you know, speedy manner because enough 
you know, public interest has been given now to the non-human biologics, to the, you know, the, all of the just incredible allegations made by, uh, by Grush. But we have enough now to where he, at the very least, like he said it under oath that he's provided materials to them. And we've also got some documents that are provided by George Knapp, which makes some really crazy allegations that were entered into the congressional record. It's like, look, investigate it and just tell if it's true or not true. I mean, it's going to be very difficult to get any kind of answers about some of the extraordinary claims that right. were made in testimony. But some of the stuff that is laid out in this personal statement seems more provable. Exactly. Like, did he actually provide the Bingo. material that he said right. he did or not? Like, that seems like something we could potentially get to the bottom of. Um, you know, what is the reality of who we work for mm -hmm. and whether he technically worked for Arrow or not? And while those things don't provide us conclusive evidence of, you know, what's going on with these craft, they do provide you with a little bit of information about the credibility yes. of these various individuals. No, I think that's incredibly well said. Uh, that gives us, this gives us actually quite a lot more to work with. And bizarrely enough, I found it ignored uh, by the media just because as a headline itself, it's like UFO whistleblower called liar by head of the Pentagon program. I mean, that's extraordinary to me. And then not, again, not done through the official DOD process. So that's the breakdown uh, from the best of what I've been able to gather on it. Uh, covering this topic, you know, things always just seem, nothing I guess is uh, ever done in the ordinary fashion. <laughs> Crystal, what are you taking a look at? Whatever you think of Barbenheimer, the explosion of cultural fascination with both films is basically a testament to our love affair with human creativity. For once, studios took a risk on a few things that were truly new and different, and they were rewarded with massive audiences and a flood of national discourse that has briefly recreated a monocultural event, the likes of which I really thought we might never see again. Ironically, this moment of delight in human imagination comes at a time when the very essence of creativity is actually under threat. Big tech, in order to monopolize the new world of AI, is attempting to feed their models with the whole world of human ingenuity, scraping every bit of language, articulated vision, and novel innovation that they can get their hands on so that their machines might impersonate a bastardized version of the human spark. These so-called large language models can't create anything new, but by harvesting our musings, our pictures, our conversations, our stories, companies are hoping that the bots can be trained to mimic us well enough that we will accept their AI-derived products. Basically, they're trying to eat our souls and then sell them back to us. But increasingly, artists and creatives are refusing to be food for bots that would replace them. Part of this resistance, of course, is located in Hollywood, where rules around AI use are at the center of the actors and writers' strike. Studios want to be able to scan actors and use their likeness forever for whatever they want, obliterating the livelihoods of many actors, including extras. Studios also want to be able to use AI to write first drafts of new shows and films, bringing writers in at the end just to polish those scripts at a lower pay rate. Both of these things, of course, are assaults on workers' pay, and that is really crucial. But they're also an assault on the very essence of human creativity. Instead of a human vision, born of whatever collection of experiences brought that particular person to that particular moment, studios want to use AI to barf up a regurgitated amalgamation of the creativity that it has pilfered from humanity. A pure embodiment of this struggle is coming from an unexpected place, the world of fan fiction writers. Now, these authors delight in expanding the universes of their favorite shows, books, characters. They take inspiration from another human spark and let their own imaginations run wild. They create communities around these expanded visions. They author stories primarily for the sheer joy of creativity, since copyright laws keep them from directly monetizing their work. And many, 
were horrified to see their works scraped and ingested by AI. Now, the way these authors figured out their work had been fed to the machines is actually kind of interesting in and of itself. One of the bots exhibited detailed knowledge of something called the Omegaverse, which is apparently a specific sexual dynamic that only exists in the fan fiction world. That's all I really know about it. There was no way the bots could have known about the Omegaverse if they had not been trained on reams of fan fiction. Rather than accepting this unauthorized pilfering of their labors of love, fan fiction writers staged a revolt. Some decided they would no longer post their stories publicly, instead sending to private lists or taking other steps to keep their work private and walled off from the machines. They've also been pushing popular fan fiction sites to ban AI-generated content. A number also mounted a unique protest of small-scale sabotage. Authors banded together for a write-a-thon in which they attempted to produce as much garbage fanfic as they possibly could in an attempt to confuse the machines. I actually love the ingenuity of this approach. Creative community using creative mischief to mess with the bots. It's quite beautiful, actually. More mainstream artists are also mounting resistance of their own using the legal system and demands for payment. Thousands of authors, including James Patterson, signed an open letter demanding permission and compensation for the use of their work. Comedian Sarah Silverman is among a growing number of creatives who have filed lawsuits against big tech companies for the unauthorized use of their work to train AI models. The news industry has also been fighting to get paid for use of their archives, and the AP has actually reached some sort of a deal with OpenAI to license their news content. Well, I can imagine the big boys, like the New York Times, let's say, cutting deals with AI companies Who's going to look out for the product of smaller scale creators? Because while you may not see yourself as a creator, to be human is to create. It's to tell stories, to share thoughts, to build, to find delight in sparks of inspiration. AI will never be able to actually do these things, but I think the attempt to vacuum up as much human creative content as possible from works of art to Facebook musing should be properly seen as an existential threat. The goal of these tech oligarchs is to make AI's regurgitated derivative products good enough that these products come to dominate the cultural landscape and certainly the marketplace, devaluing human creativity and squeezing it down into increasingly cramped corners of our society. Technology, which was supposed to bring the marvel of human creativity to global audiences, instead being used to quash human creativity's centrality to our own society. It's not that the drive to create will be extinguished, of course not. If you can't make a living from artistic expression, then the day job is certainly going to take precedence. If AI is creating our music and our movies because it's cheaper than paying real human beings, we're basically marking an endpoint for the advance of human creativity on a national or international scale. Because AI cannot create anything new, only recycle the old, leaving us in an endless cultural loop, living off the scraps of recombined Friends episodes and Star Wars spinoffs. Tech giants vacuuming up every human labor of love, flight of fancy, creative spark, and lots of driveling and driveling mundane meanderings besides, all to train AI models to serve their own profit-making purposes. I mean, guys, what could go wrong here? In other words, you might have liked Barbie, but are you really going to like Barbie 5 brought to you by the bots? Perhaps better to reflect on Oppenheimer, where we track how humanity invents the tools of our own destruction. And Sagar, you know, it really got... To me, the, the fanfic. And if you want to hear my reaction to Crystal's monologue, become a premium subscriber today at breakingpoints.com. All right, Saga, what are you looking at? 
I'll worry a lot here on breaking points about polarization, red versus blue. It's the easiest form to discuss, but in reality, the way that polarization really affects our lives is all the little ways that we start to hate each other, from dating preferences to where you will live, to the type of car that you will buy, to which school that you will send your kids to. Polarization actually divides us in a more fundamental way than we often tend to realize. And I often said that polarization today is best understood by a single question. Did you attend a four-year college degree or not? The answer to that question is probably the single best determinant of how you voted in 2020. If you did statistically, you're much more likely to vote Democrat. And if you didn't, statistically more likely to support Trump. Where there are important exceptions, and overall it's good, as good as we got, but increasingly another factor is actually beginning to emerge that could really hurt us. What gender are you? As you could actually see from those maps, if only women voted Democrats would win by a huge margin. If only men voted, the same would happen for Republicans. So once again, there are important exceptions to this rule, but the more true that it becomes, the bigger problems you are going to have. In fact, the more that I'm looking at emerging data, I'm realizing we've never actually been less racially polarized as a country, which is not a bad thing, but within races, we are actually polarizing amongst very different lines. Take Latino voters, for example. The two big, big predictors of whether a Latino voted for Trump in 2020 are, did you attend college or not? And are you a man or a woman? The same is true for white voters. Increasingly, we see signs of this trend even amongst black voters. Andrew Breitbart once famously said, politics is downstream of culture. In this divide, I think it's becoming even more clear. What stunned me was not just that this is true for adults, but it appears true even for the emerging generation of teenagers who much has been talked and written about as the great liberal hope. If you're talking about just women, that might be true. But some new data unearthed by Daniel DeVise at the Hill, buried within the Monitoring the Future survey from the University of Michigan, finds that the political identities of 12th grade boys differs starkly from the political identities of 12th grade girls. The Michigan survey finds, quote, 12th grade boys are nearly twice as likely to identify as conservative versus liberal. Now, it's important that many people don't identify as anything. It's important to note that. Conservative standing still only is approximately one quarter. Liberal is at 13%. But it's important designator whenever you put it up against women. For girls, it could actually be more different. As the survey finds, quote, the share of 12th grade girls who identify as liberal rose from 19% in 2012 to 30% in 2022. Only 12% of girls identified as conservative in last year's survey. So effectively, the polar opposite of what's going on with boys. What's interesting is not the divide, but how actually new the divide is. As they note, quote, as recently as late 2000s, liberal boys occasionally outnumbered conservatives, and back in the Carter era, both boys and girls were leaning towards liberal. As researcher Gene Twenge actually found in a new book published Generations, the difference in attitudes between 12th graders has never been bigger than today. What's really interesting is that over a five-year period, girls became slightly more liberal, but it's boys in particular who became much more conservative. So this explains actually a lot about today. A lot of trends like Liver King and Andrew Tate phenomenons online, shitposting, Reddit culture as the overall culture becomes dramatically more hostile to traditional masculinity, especially during the Trump years. The new data on high schoolers in particular will have profound consequences for our society, culture, and our demographics as the years progress. We're already seeing what happens when this is applied to college, for example. The more college is coded as left wing and for women and gays, the more that boys are just going to drop out. That's 
something that I've covered here repeatedly. Boys who are fleeing college by the millions in this higher education soon will have a gender gap nearly equal to the electoral gap that we are seeing right now. It is really as if worlds are colliding. And to once again answer that question, why should you even care about gender gaps in politics or in education? Because it profoundly influences who dates who, and thus who is going to reproduce, or even if that's attainable. A college graduate, for example, on average, 43% less likely to date someone who is, quote, a Republican than the average American. It jumps up to 65% for the term, quote, is a Trump supporter. Dating and political polarization amongst gender lines creates a dramatic mismatch in the availability of mates, both genders, as they age up to the point where they desire a permanent partner. And while I support people's right to be single, of course, if they want to, the data tells us that people who are single longer and throughout their lives are less happy, less likely to report satisfaction in life, more likely to suffer from health problems, suffer worse, worse overall lifetime earnings, and suffer on a myriad of other key quality of life metrics. So what can we do about this? I honestly don't know. Richard Reeves has some great ideas in his book about how to stop gender imbalances in schools and higher education, but I think it goes way deeper than that. Culture is telling men that they're not wanted and they're responding accordingly by becoming both less desirable as mates and becoming more self-loathing and angry with the internet as a vehicle. Andrew Tate was a symptom of this disease, Liver King and many other scam artists to come and go since. Step one, at least, is acknowledging that we have a problem. It's okay to be a man, and it's also okay to care about men. So I'm clear, uh, curious what you thought, Crystal, about that. Uh, and if you want to hear my reaction to Sagar's monologue, become a premium subscriber today at breakingpoints.com. We're going to have a great show for everybody on Thursday. Enjoy Counterpoints tomorrow. Uh, Ryan will be, where's he coming in from? From France. Uh, we're jealous of him uh, here <laughs> at Breaking Points. So anyway, enjoy the show. Thank you to all of our premium subscribers who have been signing up. And we're working on some big, big guests uh, just to explain the current absence. So we'll see you guys later. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.